This is an ABC podcast. Hello, this is LNL coming to you from Gadigal Land. Richard Aidy in the chair tonight, filling in for Philip, who has a bit of a lurgy. Moving is pretty horrible. Even if you want to leave the place you're leaving and get to where you're going, it's stressful. There's planning and packing and a thousand other logistical challenges. So what about moving a country, or at least a big proportion of a country's population? This is the challenge faced by some of our neighbours as the warming climate brings rising sea levels that force people to leave. You'll hear more about that shortly. And you'll hear about a remarkable artist. You may already be familiar with the work of Mandy Martin. If you are, you'll know that she's worth hearing more about. If you're not, you're going to hear about somebody amazing. That's a bit later. Let's start with politics. Now, usually the show heads to Canberra on a Monday, but this week all eyes will be on Victoria as a particularly spiteful election campaign draws to a close. Dan Andrews is hoping for a third term as Premier, and opposition leader Matthew Guy is hoping for a win against the odds. It seems clear that the election's a referendum on the performance of Dan Andrews, who's become a very polarising figure over his leadership during the pandemic and through the lengthy lockdowns endured by Victorians. Given he's been in power for eight years already, he should be worried. But the opposition has not gained the traction it would have liked. To give us some historical context on the current campaign, I'm pleased to welcome George Megalogenis back to the program. George is an author, political analyst and a columnist for The Age. Hello, George. How are you, Richard? I'm well. It's good to talk to you again. In a recent article in The Age, you made comparisons between this election and the 1999 election when Jeff Kennett unexpectedly lost to Steve Brax. What are the similarities? A couple straight off the top. Uh, The number of seats uh, the Labor Party are taking into this election after the redistribution of electoral boundaries, and I'm relying on Anthony Green's um, estimate, is identical to the number of seats Jeff Kennett took into the 1999 election. That's uh, parallel number one. Parallel number two, uh, Daniel Andrews is the longest serving uh, leader in the nation, federal, state, or territory as Jeff Kennett was in 1999. And uh, for most of this term, uh, because Labor won in a landslide in, in 2018, as the Liberal Party was returned in a landslide in 1996, the expectation was that this one-man government, this one-Dan government, uh, a bit like uh, the Kennett government, would be re-elected easily. And that's parallel number three. Parallel number four is uh, the opposition in 1999, Labor had just switched leaders uh, to Steve Brax, who was then uh, relatively unknown, replacing John Brumby. And Labor still had the baggage of that early 1990s recession. Uh, unemployment uh, reached 13%. Uh, the budget was broken. The state was in debt. Mm. And people couldn't couldn't conceive of the government of Labor being returned to government so soon after that debacle. And there's a there's a similar sense around the coalition having just been wiped out the previous election, that you couldn't imagine them uh, coming back to power so soon. But as you say straight off the top, the government's had two terms. Uh, the, its time factor tends to kick in after two terms. It does. And you've yeah. got a polarising leader in uh, Daniel Andrews. But there are obviously some very significant differences. The, the first one I think of is that Matthew Guy isn't host Steve Brax. Absolutely. Uh, Steve Brax, people forget it now, but uh, in 1999... He was seen as harmless, a bit of a clean skin, a nice guy. The knock on him wasn't he couldn't stand up to Jeff Kennett. People thought that he was too nice to take him on. But it turned out that was exactly what the people of Victoria wanted. They were sort of over this one-man government and were looking forward to throwing him out. Um, I was still in Canberra at the time, but I sort of returned to Melbourne just in time for the handover. And the talk around town, even after the election, and that election... Uh, had to be decided at a supplementary election. There was a, there was a, an election for a single seat because the candidate had passed away on election day, and that that election had to be held over for a month. Uh, Labor uh, were a minority government, so they had three seats uh, held by independents that ended up deciding who'd be the premier. 
And Steve Rax just presented better at every one of those meetings with the crossbench. Jeff Kennett uh, was still in a bit of denial about the swing against him, and he was a bit hostile towards the crossbench, whereas Brax just ticked off every request and became Premier. But as I said, the word around town at the time was that it was a protest vote that went wrong. Um, but subsequently, of course, Labor then had uh, was re-elected twice under Brax in landslides. So not dissimilar, not dissimilar pattern to... Uh, Bob Carr just falling over the line mm. in 1995 by a single seat and, and uh, Beattie, Peter Beattie in Queensland uh, getting minority government in 98 and then back-to-back uh, -back landslides. So, yeah, you, I mean, you're flagging, you're flagging the, the difference. Matthew Guy is shop-worn. He's already lost an election. Uh, he lost his leadership. He got the leadership back. And he's come back uh, wanting to be a sort of a, not quite a Steve Brax, but a much more... Uh, middle of the road mainstream character, but hasn't been able to shake the anger in him. So in a funny way, he may be coming in too hard at uh, Andrews when probably what you're looking at, if you're looking at for an identical parallel, it's a nice guy or a woman that probably would have been the better uh, the better opponent for Andrews at the moment. George, you just said something about, you know, being in the middle, but the Liberal Party in Victoria is not in the middle anymore, not in the way it used to be. It's moved to the right. And how did this happen? This is a very interesting question. Um, you know, governments used to be decided in the in the um, in the eastern suburbs of Melbourne. This is where Menzies' moral majority uh, uh, sort of resided. The fifties, the sixties, even into the seventies, Whitlam couldn't win power without winning some uh, suburban electorates in Melbourne. And of course, Fraser and then Hawke uh, both dominated the city of Melbourne, and the city of Melbourne pretty much decided. Uh, who ran uh, who ran the country. Victoria and Melbourne especially have been on the sort of uh, to the left of national opinion, I think for about 20 years now. I think most people accept that mm. uh, going into the last election. Obviously, things change at the last election. So the state itself seems to have been uh, moved to a bit to the left, but the Liberal Party out of power, uh, partly because the demographics of the city, especially that decides elections in Victoria now, has changed. Their way to sort of get back into power is to sort of try to outflank Labor from a harder right perspective. Now I'm not sure that that's worked because they've lost most of the elections in the last 30 years. They've only they've only won three elections, and the second time they came back into power, which was in uh, 2010, they only lasted a single term. So they are they are clearly to the right of the Victorian population. Yeah. How it happened? Uh, you probably need to get into the faction, you get it into the weeds of well, the factional politics in Victoria, but. Bear in mind, the that's a, Labor that's a rabbit is, hole. Let's not yeah, do it. Bear in mind, yeah, but bear in mind, the Labor Party is to the left of, yeah, left of pretty much everyone as well. So it's a pretty rabid state in terms of its, if it, in terms of its two main parties. Yeah, I, the other thing I've been wondering about is the church has an influence in conservative politics, and Victoria is actually the most secular state in the nation second, as well. Yeah, well, well, of the mainland, second most secular after South Australia and um, and South Australia and Tasmania the, are the two most secular, but Victoria is much more secular than New South Wales. So New South Wales is still majority Christian and it's one of the few states in the country that is still majority Christian. Uh, Victoria, it, sorry, regional Victoria is actually already past the point where more than half the people who tick that no religion box in the census. So they're already majority secular in, in uh, the rest of Victoria. And in uh, Melbourne, it's no longer majority Christian. So if you were um, if you were sort of visiting from outer space and you wanted to uh, and you wanted to pull the three strings to to gain power in um, in a place like Victoria, you wouldn't be starting from there. You wouldn't be starting from uh, uh, a very religious position. Nor would you be starting, by the way, from a very ideological position no. either on the left. Well, I mean, and you've already touched on this. Uh, the Victorian Labor Party is to the left of the electorate. Yep. The, the coalition in Victoria is to the right of the electorate. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, uh, so they're both, they're actually going to both be vulnerable in different ways. Can you walk briefly through where the two parties feel that they're vulnerable? Yeah, look, if I can take you back again to the 1999 parallel, where, where can it... Uh, was surprised by uh, Steve Brax and John Brumby, who was his lieutenant, who handed the leadership over to him. The Labor Party uh, saw a path to power through the regions, and these were the regions that Kennett had neglected uh, during his big deregulation uh, campaign, you know, to sort of set the uh, the state's books right. 
and there was a sense that basically all power resided in Melbourne and the regions had been forgotten. Fast forward to 2022, the regions are not going to decide this election. The outer suburbs will decide this election. And this is where Labor has its equivalent vulnerability that Kennett had in the bush. There are seats in the west and in the north and in the deep south uh, where Labor has never lost uh, any one of those seats for a good 20 years now. Uh, these seats now are vulnerable, not because the Liberals are necessarily the, uh, the party that will pick up all the votes. It's, these things are obviously um, you know, been neglected in terms of services. You know, they're booming populations, uh, a lot of land release, a lot of development, but no schools, no roads, no train stations, no, no bus routes, uh, no childcare centres. <laughs> No courthouses, no police stations. It's a, it's a, you should go out there one day. Trust me, you should go out there one day. It is a, uh, it is a really, really difficult place to see how uh, 20, 30, 40, 50Ks out of Melbourne, uh, voters out there feel connected, is, to, the, connected yeah. to the government of the day. This is, this is the growth problem. Melbourne is yes. about to become the biggest city in the country, but the infrastructure is not there yet. What will the voters be deciding on? Will it be policies or, or will it be integrity? Because I, I noticed both Dan Andrews and Matthew Guy have been referred to the Anti-Corruption Commission over state donation laws. I mean, is, is this sort of serious or is it an attempt to, or, there are, or is it bound in attempts to smear their opponents? Yeah, I think integrity matters uh, in the inner city and in the eastern suburbs. I don't think it matters as much in the outer suburbs. So where the perfect storm for Labor would be, uh, lose a couple of seats to the Greens in the city, lose a seat or two to the Liberals where in the in the eastern suburbs where they sort of were over the odds at the last election where they won in a landslide, and then lose three, four, five, six seats in the outer metropolitan area to either Liberals or Independents. That's their perfect storm. And integrity uh, will be one part of it, but it'll be service delivery. It'll be healthcare. It'll be, uh, you know, physical infrastructure. It'll be transport. Those are the and those are the things that have decided elections have changed governments in the past, uh, in this in the twenty first century. Mm. And of course, state so governments, two, state governments yeah, are in both, the service delivery business. That's what they do. Absolutely, but the last two elections, uh, twenty ten and twenty fourteen, where we changed governments uh, from Labor from Labor to Liberal for coalition, and then from coalition back to Labor, uh, the seats that decided that election were along the Frankston train line. Uh, for your listeners who 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 would know that part? It's sort of Bayside part of Melbourne. It's the southeast uh, growth corridor. Mm. That part of the electorate won't nest. If if the government is to fall in the majority, from majority to minority, or even if it is to lose power completely, it won't be losing it along the Frankston line. It'll be losing it everywhere else. A lot to watch on Saturday, George. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you very much, Richard. It's great to talk to you again. That is uh, George Megalogenis. It's always great to talk to him, author, political analyst, columnist for The Age. Coming up on LNL, as COP27 winds up, we're going to hear about the harsh realities of moving entire villages affected by climate change in Fiji, moving them up. After a tense night of negotiations, a deal was reached yesterday at Egypt's COP27 climate summit to set up a loss and damage fund. While a lot of the details will still have to be fleshed out, the fund will help frontline communities cope with the immediate costs of climate-related disasters, something that's long overdue. In Fiji, one of the most vulnerable countries, dozens of villages will soon be underwater. In fact, some already are. They've come up with the most detailed plan ever devised to relocate communities affected by the climate crisis, but it is really no small task. To tell us about it, I'm joined by Kate Lyons, the Guardian's Pacific editor. Also on the line is Netani Rika, who's Development and Communications Manager for the Pacific Conference of Churches. And all the way from Egypt, where she's been attending COP27, is Makarata Wangavonovono, coordinator of the NGO Climate Talk. Thank you all for joining us. My pleasure. Kate, you recently were in Fiji to report on this national relocation plan, which I had not heard about until I read your article. Can you tell us briefly about this plan and, and kind of where are we with it? 
Yeah, it's, it's quite an extraordinary plan. Um, and experts in climate relocation say it's, it's as far as any country has ever got in developing um, a comprehensive, thoughtful you know, national policy for planned relocation, which is such a tragic thing to have to develop a policy for. But um, Fiji is so impressive in that it's doing it in such a concerted and comprehensive and clear-eyed way. Uh, so basically, the government has spent years uh, working out how planned relocation across the country will work. Um, they have been engaging communities and government officials and stakeholders like uh, Makareta and Natani, who've got on the call, um, to yeah, devise this policy. And so I've had a look at the um, the, the sort of draft we're at now, which is in the final stages of, of consultation before it goes to Cabinet for approval, which should happen quite soon. Um, and at the moment, it's sort of 130 pages of very dense text full of um, really, really detailed um, information about exactly who is responsible at each step, which government department, um, and what the process is like, how long each step should take, what the checks and balances are so that community consent is always um, is always there. It's, it's incredibly detailed. It just absolutely, it felt like a sort of choose-your-own-adventure novel looking at it because it had these spider graphs that said, you know, if this is Indigenous land, then the responsible ministry is this. If it is a settlement, non-Indigenous um, community, then the responsible ministry is this. If the risk is from cyclones, then this particular department conducts the risk assessment of the land. If it's from flooding or from landslides, then it's this department. Like, it's just, it's so, so uh, detailed and sort of meticulous this plan. Um, and it, yeah, as I said, it's in the final stages before it, it becomes uh, national policy. Yes, it's had lots of iterations, of course, because it has to be able to deal with so many different scenarios. I think, Kate, uh, currently 42 villages are earmarked for potential relocation. I know you visited a couple of them that have already been moved or are in the process. What can you tell us about the range of relocation experiences you saw? Well, I mean, it's incredibly... It's incredibly diverse and that it's part of the reason that this document, this national policy uh, is, always, is often described as a living document because as the different experiences of villages happen, they feed that back into the policy and, and, and the policy changes. Um, but for instance, I visited uh, a one village that was the first village to be relocated, uh, Vunidongaloa, and that was uh, a, a village that moved and knew it would have to move for several decades, really. It's been talking about relocation since the 50s because of sea level rise. And that just um, was, you know, poisoning the village, basically, poisoning the land, creeping in, devouring houses. And they moved back and back and back and adapted and adapted until they could adapt no more. Um, and that, that relocation is broadly considered to be quite successful. There were some issues and some uh, teething problems that... Um, had to be worked through, like they built the houses in the new village with no kitchens, um, which, as uh, Macareta told me, and, and uh, was perhaps a sign that they should have added some women in the consultation for the, the building um, plans. Mm. Um, but broadly it was considered quite successful. Um, but then you have another village, which isn't too far, is it just a few hours away on the same island, uh, Namavatu, and that relocation happened quite suddenly. Um, they were hit badly by Cyclone Anna at the beginning of 2021. Mm. And there was a big land sort of slippage on the hill where the village is located and the land was deemed unsafe by the government. People were told to move immediately. Um, and now we're, you know, we're approaching two years since that cyclone and the people of Namavatu are still living in Aid donated disaster relief sort of refugee-style tents on the grounds of a church uh, while they wait for um, the very slow process of a new village to be built for them um, and for that relocation to happen. Mm. And there are all sorts of reasons why that has been slower and why that um, has been complicated. But, yeah, there it's just depending on the disaster, the location, the resources of the community, whether the... Um, whether the clan has safe land within its clan boundaries to move to, um, all of those things affect the ability to relocate quickly and well. Come back to some of that later, but I want to bring in Makareta. Makareta, we've got you at COP, uh, where a loss and damage fund has been announced. Are you hopeful 
that this will help with this process of relocations in Fiji? Oh, yes. I'm very hopeful. Uh, it's a huge progress from what has been negotiated in previous years. Last year, the Scottish government gave a million towards loss and damage, and that money is supposed to go directly to the grassroots level, to the communities. We got about 45,000 US dollars from that. Now, we had meetings with the Scottish government while I was there, and they had promised another 5 million, you know, that would again go through the same processes. So, um, that's really not enough to reduce the loss and damage that's going to happen in the future because we really need to phase out fossil fuels. So that is the next, you know, challenge for uh, NGO communities to be looking at. But our communities such as Nambavatu, which Kit mentioned, Zongea and others, this will definitely um, cut short the process and people can live in dignity uh, once more and in comfort. Yes, yes. I want to bring Natani in now. Moving is not something people are mostly choosing to do. It's it's a sort of last resort. How have people told you they feel about having to do this, moving away from their, their land and, and other things too? I suppose the, the, they feel hurt. They feel a sense of loss at leaving behind land which they consider to be their birthright. So it's a deeply spiritual uh, experience, thinking about leaving and then actually deciding to make the move. So it's not been easy. And uh, in some cases, uh, villagers feel that they have not been consulted enough. They haven't been uh, told what is going to happen. In some cases, they have to move to land that doesn't belong to them. Yes. And so that can, that can open up huge difficulties yeah. in, uh, in dealing with other clans and other tribes. I understand a, a particularly tricky task, and I can only begin to imagine this, is relocating people's burial grounds or for them to agree to leave them. Can you tell us a bit more about that? Yes, um, the Pacific Conference of Churches has accompanied the villages of uh, of Wurindongoloa, uh, who didn't want to leave their ancient uh, burial grounds. Uh, it's been important for the Conference of Churches to to accompany the villages and to explain that uh, it is okay to leave certain things uh, behind, and uh, that there is a need to focus on the future and uh, the lives of the young people, the children who are growing up, and to, to provide a safe space for, for the vulnerable, for the elderly, uh, for people living with disabilities. And that um, if I were to be slightly crass about it, that the dead can look after themselves. Uh, but uh, it's, it's not an easy uh, thing to say to, to villagers who are who feel that they are dishonoring uh, their ancestors by leaving them, uh, abandoning them and moving to uh, a new place. Yeah, both of those either deciding to uh, bring them with them, that would be incredibly confronting as well, or to leave them, very confronting. I, I want to go back to Kate Lyons from The Guardian. One of the things you wrote about, Kate, was that there are, there are essentially two complicating factors in this process. One is access to land, uh, which, which Natania has touched on, and there's also access to money. Just briefly explain why both have been so fraught. Yeah, those are the two real obstacles that communities face. The, the land question is um, because in Fiji so much land is um, Indigenous land, Aitoke land, um, it, it is much, much simpler for a community to move if within its clan boundaries, its Matangali um, boundaries, it has land that is safe to move to. So that that was the case for Vunidongaloa. Um, they were able to to relocate within their um, within their boundaries. If it's the case that there is no safe land or no appropriate land for a village to be built on. 
our relocated village, then the community has a really tricky um, situation. They face either negotiating with a neighbouring clan to be given land to move to um, or negotiating with the government for a lease of government land to move to. Um, and either one is complicated. So in Namavatu's case, they, they now have a plot of land, which I was able to visit, sort of 12-acre plot of government land that they can lease from the government. They're really happy about that and they hope building can start soon. Um, but in, in other cases, um, so for instance, in Tukuraki, which is a village on the main island of Fiji um, in, the, in the highlands, they negotiated with a neighbouring clan to move to land within that clan's boundaries. Uh, but it doesn't it doesn't work like it would in in Australia where you might um, have a formal commercial lease with you know signed rights and money exchange that that's just not how it would operate in Fiji the land will always belong to that clan who you know whose land it is um, but it's given for uh, um, residential purposes to you know, for use for the other, the clan. And that, that can be complicated. So in, in Tukaraki's case, um, it was going smoothly. The rebuild, you know, rebuilding happened, the community moved in, and then uh, some tensions arose between the relocated community and the, the host community. Mm. Um, and that was partly because the development of the relocated community um, exceeded the sort of development that had been put in by the host community. And so there was some um, some resentment that and some jealousy of the, you know, the, the houses that had solar panels and flushing toilets and septic tanks and a poultry farm and, and fish ponds and other resources that the host community didn't have, which feels quite... <coughs> excuse me, quite understandable uh, in many ways. And, and even that, so that Tukuraki experience has been folded into the to the government's relocation plan now, so that the con, the development of the host community has to be considered when a, a relocated community is moving to their land. So there is recognition of of that experience and a way to feed that in. Yeah, it's 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 one of those things. It's obvious afterwards. Obvious very easy not to have thought of it at the time. That's right. And I mean, that's the thing. This is such an unprecedented thing we're seeing in Fiji. Um, but sadly, will become very, very common and normal around the world, mm -hmm. um, which is why it's so extraordinary that they they really are trailblazing this path um, for the, the rest of the world, quite tragically. And then the other issue you mentioned was money. And that, uh, I mean, it's just, it's an expensive exercised to move a whole community because we're not just talking about moving a few houses. You're talking about roads and water and electricity and infrastructure and a, potentially a school or health centre. Um, you're talking about a church. You're talking about a whole lot of things um, that go with that relocation. And it's difficult to put a number on it. I asked the climate change minister and he said, it's just, you can't compare, you know, you might have a village of 40 people compared to a village of 400 and how far you're moving and the risks and all of that, but several million dollars for a relocated community. Um, and when you think there are 42 on the list and the, like, how much it's all going to add up to. There's just not enough money in the government coffers to pay for every community that requires relocation, um, which, and, and villages often contribute. Um, they contribute resources. They might have timber. They might have a forest that can be partially logged for the timber for the houses. They mm. might have sand or gravel or other building resources, but um, there needs to be money coming in from other sources and if this is even going to have a chance of being possible. Nothing like enough at the moment. Uh, I, I want to go back to Makareta uh, Wangavonovono, who we've got on the line from Egypt, uh, been at COP27. In your consultations, Makareta, you realise that there needs to be a lot more conversation about things like loss and damage in the communities. Can you tell me a bit about that? Um, we're really... You know, I don't think compensation has been discussed much because our people in different communities, uh, they, you know, they don't think like uh, activists. For them, they're just accepting it as part of everyday life. It's God's will. So the anger, the, the agitation is coming from people like me, and you know, NGOs, 
those who are those who know, you know, the bigger question of why these things are happening, why the sea level is rising, why we are having frequent cyclones and flooding, you know, following that. Yes. So my my issue is that, and which I told uh, the NGOs who are present in our consultations, that we need to take conversation to the community. We need to take what we are talking about at the higher level, at the national, regional, and global level, to the community, and that needs to happen before we can even talk about compensation. Of course, they know our communities know what they've lost. They know, you know, the implications of what moving means, what they're going to lose, that they will be leaving their ancestors behind. But the conversation that needs to happen as to why these things are happening and that this is not their fault, that they are innocent parties. Nisani, uh, if I could come back to you, how much do you think people are now having the conversations in communities and, and very briefly, what do you hope other countries might learn from your own experience? I think the, the conversations are, are increasing uh, throughout the communities now. Uh, for the church, it's important for us to, to help villagers understand that the rising sea levels have nothing to do with God's punishment or with anything that they have done wrong and to make them understand that these are things beyond their control mm. and um, there are ways that they can mitigate but uh, a lot of this work needs to be done by people uh, in, in other countries and uh, what, what i hope uh, other people will learn is that pacific villages pacific communities are struggling pacific governments are also struggling because they cannot fund the relocation on their own and uh, common decency from the countries in uh, in, in which uh, carbon emissions continue to increase. We, we would expect some common decency from them and to accept some of the responsibility towards the cost of relocating the communities which, which have no option but to move. Indeed. That is where we'll leave it. I want to thank all of my guests uh, for joining me today. You just heard from... Uh, Netany Rika, who's Development and Communications Manager for the Pacific Conference of Churches. We also heard from Makareta Wangavanavana, who's Coordinator of the NGO Climate Talk, and Kate Lyons, who's The Guardian's Pacific Editor. This is LNL uh, with Richard A.D. this evening. Coming up, the life and art of the late Mandy Martin. Earlier this year on Late Night Live, we reflected on the passing of South Australian feminist artist Anne Newmarch, whose Women Hold Up Half the Sky work was emblematic of the 1970s push for greater recognition of women's rights. Tonight we're going to look at the life of one of her contemporaries. Mandy Martin's paintings have been exhibited in galleries the world over, and her work, which depicts power, politics and the impact of human beings on the planet, has been described as both bold and subtle, profound and breathtaking. A major retrospective is currently on show at the Geelong Gallery in Victoria, coinciding with the 70th anniversary of the late artist's birth. And we're joined on LNL Now by Geelong Gallery Director and Chief Executive Jason Smith, and a man who very much admired Mandy Martin's work and indeed accompanied her on several of her expeditions, Tom Griffiths, Emeritus Professor of History at the ANU. Gentlemen, welcome both of you. Thank you. Thank you, Richard. Jason, I want to begin with you, and we'll talk more about Mandy's life in a moment, but I wanted to start with Red Ochre Cove, which is in Parliament House in Canberra. For people who haven't seen it, maybe don't know about it, tell us briefly about this painting. Red Ochre Cove uh, was commissioned by the Parliament House Authority in 1986 and was then regarded as the largest painting commission in Australian art history. It measures 
upwards of four metres high by 12 metres wide in three panels. And Mandy Martin painted Red Ochre Cove uh, throughout 1987 in preparation for the opening of the building in 1988. And it is a vast panoramic landscape uh, of rapid drawn from rapid drawings she made in Rapid Bay on the coastline of South Australia. Uh, she would generally amalgamate various drawings into one painting. But it has a very striking shaft of golden light through the centre of the picture, coming through a stormy but very beautiful sky. And this is based on, the entire composition is based on Tom Roberts's painting uh, that people see before they go in to see Mandy Martin's painting, which is the 1901 opening of Parliament House, Parliament in Melbourne in the exhibition building. So she used the same compositional device that Tom Roberts used, uh, but drew attention to industry and Indigenous landscape uh, through Red Ochre Cove. It really is something. Actually, you, you had a kind of bird's eye view of, of the composition, didn't you, of it all coming together? I was the live-in au pair as a fourth-year art student uh, in 1987 when Mandy's then-husband, Robert Boynes, a uh, major Australian painter, was on sabbatical in the USA. Uh, so I, as one of Mandy's fourth-year printmaking students, decided to live in the studio and help her with the children while she painted this vast undertaking for Parliament House. And I saw that painting evolve over the course mm. of months uh, in a studio in Pialago, and it was a, an, ex an exceptional privilege to watch her work on this exceptionally <laughs> large work. And kudos for you for volunteering to work with children in that circumstance. <laughs> Uh, briefly, tell us about Mandy's early years, because I, I think I'm right in saying she grew up in 1950s Adelaide, which was then really quite a conservative place. She was born in 1952 and studied, and had a botanist father and a, a painter mother. Uh, and Mandy, from an early age, was precociously talented uh, in drawing uh, and was taught early by Ruth Tuck in Adelaide. Uh, she studied at the South Australian School of Art, but also uh, was drawn to an important course, Politics and Art, uh, run by Brian Medlin at the Flinders University. Um, so she, uh, from an early age, had a political bent. Uh, she was a, a great fighter for justice. She was a feminist and was important in that second wave of feminism that flowered particularly in Adelaide. Uh, through the late 1960s and early 1970s. Uh, and she found herself very quickly at the centre of the women's art movement as a young woman in her early 20s uh, when she began to meet people like Anne Newmarch and Robert yes. Boyens and a whole range of other people. I was about to get to Anne Newmarch and indeed the Adelaide feminist artist Prue Medlin. I think she was in the same circles. She was in the same, or uh, who changed her name to Prue Lamotte, but um, they're in the same circle. It was a wide circle of artists, writers, musicians, cultural workers. Uh, and indeed, at one time, uh, Mandy Martin was living and working with uh, Anne Newmarch. Uh, and uh, it was Robert Boynes who taught Mandy Martin screen printing, and Mandy Martin then taught Anne Newmarch how to screen print. So it was a highly dynamic, interactive uh, collective of artists working in Adelaide at the time. And Adelaide, under that decade of Dunstan, for instance, yes. um, you know, the 70s, uh, was a, a, an incredible hotbed of uh, arts and culture and, and support for um, a whole range of socially progressive initiatives that artists like Newmarch and Boynes and Martin responded to very productively. But they're also, you know, they will have a lot to critique in terms of uh, unions and uh, workers' rights and the rights of women and, and uh, sexual politics. So there's a lot going on in the work. There, there really <laughs> is. And I'm, I'm going to bring in Tom in a moment, but just one more before I do, Jason. In in the late 70s, I think Mandy becomes a lecturer at the ANU School of Art and Design, which I remember when it was called the Canberra School of Art. At this stage, she's, she's still in her mid-20s, isn't she? She's in her late 20s when she starts teaching at the Canberra School of Art, uh, and she became very quickly an influential, generous uh, and uh, highly uh, regarded uh, educator uh, and mentor, uh, where she taught for the better part of two decades. Uh, she was uh, an exceptional printmaker and uh, was a great teacher because her attitude to first-year students as soon as you entered the printmaking workshop, and remember the Canberra School of Art was based on the Bauhaus model of discipline-based workshops, so you went there to work uh, and learn your craft. Uh, she regarded the most 
sort of junior first years as emerging artists and spoke to you as such. So she was an incredible communicator and a great educator. Oh, well, I want to bring in you now, Tom. Tom Griffiths. Um, in, in the mid-90s, we're skipping forward. There's a, a lot to talk about. Mandy marries a beef farmer, uh, moves to Mandurama, uh, which is on Rajuri country in regional New South Wales. How did this inform her work? Yes, well, her work really took an environmental turn from that point. It had always been there, of course, brewing uh, in her political work, as Jason has explained. But uh, from the mid-90s and through her marriage to Guy Fitzharding, who, as you mentioned, uh, is a, a very innovative beef farmer, a conservationist, and had a number of roles such as Director of Bush Heritage and uh, a member of the Commonwealth Threatened Species Committee and so forth, um, uh, she really uh, began to design a series of what she called environmental projects. And I was lucky as a historian to be invited to join these expeditions. And expeditions they were. Mandy really worked uh, in very consciously in the explorer-artist tradition, um, like Ludwig, Ludwig Becker with Burke and Wills. Um, you know, she was there to document and record with scientific and ecological accuracy, as well as to transform our understanding of the land through her uh, artistic vision. And, uh, you know, her art um, has a practice, it was great privilege to see her at work because uh, she was responded so much to people around her. Um, her work was not just attuned to the landscape, but very socially engaged. You know, she would unpack her ironing her board. Iron I'm glad we got to the ironing board, Tom. <laughs> yes, that was that was her uh, theatre, if you like. Uh, that's where she unfolded her magic and it w enabled her to stand looking directly at the landscape like a conductor with a score and also to keep an eye on all the people around her. She she was often doing other things as well, perhaps conducting a painting lesson for a nine-year-old on the side. Um, she'd prepared lunch for all of us probably, um, but in this place she was also... Um, uh, picking up sand from her feet, um, perhaps some ground ochre, um, pollen blowing into the wet paint. You know, it, it really grew out of that place and that moment and was, I think she loved the pressure of the sort of opportunistic field art. Yeah, and well, she's doing it in front of other people. It's, it's not performance art, but it's certainly art with an air, with an element of performance. And from the 90s, so not long, uh, around this period, she begins collaborating on projects with Indigenous people in remote and regional Australia. That's right. So uh, she's working at first largely with um, uh, white landowners in remote country and then increasingly um, she begins uh, to work with Indigenous owners and very in a very committed and political way and uh, one of the wonderful things about a series of projects with uh, Indigenous custodians and artists is that she sits her art alongside theirs and they invite her onto country and they paint together. Um, she did this um, at Jarra in Central Australia, a wonderful archaeological site where she worked with the archaeologist Mike Smith and um, Ikunji artists from Haas Bluff. She went to Paraku, uh, known also as Lake Gregory in northwest Australia, and worked with Wamajari people there uh, from the Moolan community. She went to Western Arnhem Land and worked with Bininj people, uh, and she also worked with um, uh, Wiradjuri artists in her own terrain in the central west of New South Wales. And uh, she was... Um, intrigued by what her European vision mm. looked like beside this Indigenous artistic vision. And, and each of those trips, and I'm, I'm telling you basically what you've told other people, firms her conviction that you need people on country to really look after the country. Yes. Now, that's the Indigenous insight that we have been so slow to learn uh, and understand. But for example, in working with Bininj people in Western Arnhem Land, they identified empty country as the most severe threat to their livelihood and to their health. And people on country is the best way to maintain the health of country and, and health 
social health as well. And her art enabled that inhabitation and in some cases uh, re-inhabiting country that had been um, emptied by invasion. Uh, Tom, Mandy often inscribed or, or painted words on her canvases that that describe the cultural history she encountered, but also other things like a, a geographical detail. That's right, yes. So sometimes it might be an inscription from an earlier um, visitor. Um, it might be um, latitude and longitude. It might be um, some record of where base camp was or um, some poetic insight. And in many cases, she's there, I think, echoing uh, that sense of the the documentary artist, the expedition artist, the artist who is there recording for posterity. And uh, she, in that way, was evoking people like Sir Thomas Mitchell and Conrad Martins, uh, Eugene von Gerard, um, and also, I think, um, uh, renewing this great tradition of the plein air mm. artists, you know, the outdoor artists' camps um, and... Uh, you know, we know Russell Drysdale and John Olson and John Wolseley, these other artists who um, I think identify with that tradition and it was right at the heart of Mandy's work. We are hearing about the life and extraordinary work of Mandy Martin here on LNL. Richard Adie with you. And we've just been hearing from Tom Griffiths, who's Emeritus Professor of History at the ANU. And with us also is Jason Smith, Director and Chief Executive at the Geelong Gallery, which is having a big Mandy Martin exhibition. Jason, I want to come back you, d despite Mandy's early work, which really prominently featured women and depicted class and environmental struggle, people rarely feature in her landscapes. Now, why is that? There was a moment where she decided that she didn't want to... Well, there was a moment of consideration around the exploitation of certain figures that she was working with. But Mandy, once she moved from Adelaide and through Queanbeyan to Canberra, uh, the Canberra landscape presented her with different images and forms and she hit on the very stark image of the sawtooth factory and the industrial powerhouse as a powerful metaphor for what she regarded as the end of civilization by destruction. Uh, this was also about the impact of settler cultures on landscapes. It was about the industrial colonization of the land. And so people disappear, but in their place are very stark metaphors for certain human conditions like alienation, oppression uh, and loss. So she she works very powerfully with a metaphor after the figure disappears. Some of the metaphors are, are pretty direct. Um, if we talk briefly about the work called Oblivion from the 2019 exhibition, High Viz Futures, that's an arresting image. It's an incredible image and uh, just the sheer sort of bravura of the term Oblivion scrawled across a particular uh, canvas um, is a reflection not only on the loss of landscape, but one of, as Tom has pointed out, Mandy's enduring commitment to considerations of the impact of settler cultures on Indigenous systems and Indigenous cultures. And the way in which she worked with those particular texts was very deliberate. Uh, one of the things about Mandy's work is that it is so multivalent and multi-layered. She didn't produce one-liners. They need very careful looking and theoretical unpacking, but they pack an immediate punch, uh, as, you, as you've just sort of noted. Uh, so High Viz Futures uh, was a, an exhibition in Canberra that brought together uh, a range of major collaborations that Mandy had undertaken with her artist son and colleague, Alexander Boynes, and Tristan Parr, a composer and musician from Western Australia. Uh, that combined sound, moving image and painting, but reflected on specific uh, industrial landscapes in Geelong, uh, in the Latrobe Valley mm. uh, and across in Fremantle. Uh, remarkable uh, panoramic uh, reflections, uh, particularly around climate change uh, and changing landscapes. Tom Griffiths, you, you saw this work with locals from Victoria's Latrobe Valley, which of course has been dominated by coal mining and coal burning to make power. 
Yes, well, Mandy had uh, first really painted the Latrobe power stations in the early 90s and she returns there uh, in just recent years, just a few years ago, and I was there at the opening of Rewriting the Score, which is one of these great panoramic performance pieces with Alexander Boynes and Tristan Parr uh, that was um, exhibited in the Latrobe Valley and a place which, of course, is undergoing all kinds of discussions uh, about the change to renewable energy uh, and the new energy future. And Mandy, I could see how many people in the room were energised by her work to talk about difficult things, things that they might not otherwise have spoken to one another about. And um, this is what I noticed working with Mandy always, that great art breaks down barriers and mm. it does bring people together. And it, it's, it's political and it's effective politi politically because it transcends politics. It actually get, enables people to talk about feelings and not just ideologies. And I saw this at work in uh, her a campaign to save the um, Cooper Creek from an irrigation development in the mid-90s and uh, bringing together greenies, uh, white pastoralists and Aboriginal people to talk about their love of that land and wanting to defend yeah. the wild rivers. Well, you've, you've uh, written very, very movingly about that. That is where we're going to wrap it up. But thank you. I want to thank you both for coming in. Tom Griffiths, who's Emeritus Professor of History at the Australian National University, and his most recent book is The Art of Time Travel, published by Black Ink. And we also heard from Jason Smith, Geelong Art Gallery de Director and Chief Executive. And at his gallery, Mandy Martin, A Persistent Vision, is on uh, from the 5th of November until the 5th of February next year. Jason's doing an illustrated lecture at the Geelong Gallery on Friday the 16th of December. Now, on our next show, Jonathan Green will be in as Philip keeps getting better and uh, Bruce Shapiro on the return of Trump to Twitter and more, of course, plus the decades-long battle to control the microchip and the cultural history of the coconut. I'm Richard Aidy. It's been a pleasure and the news is coming up next. Listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio, and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.